Hello, and welcome to Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. My name is Kristen Gutu, and today's guest speaker is Arslan Hidayat, who is a program director at the Campaign for Uyghurs. He graduated from the University of Western Sydney with a bachelor's degree in music and a master's degree in teaching. He used his teaching background to teach at schools and universities in Australia, Turkey, and Bahrain, and runs Talk East Turkestan, which is the most popular Facebook page and podcast highlighting the Uyghur's plight in the English language. Given his expertise, he has been invited to share his knowledge with news media outlets such as the BBC, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, CNN, and many others. He is ethnically Uyghur, first-generation Australian, so I'm interested to see your perspective. I'm very grateful for your being here today. Can you further introduce yourself, please, Arslan? Yeah, you've done a, a good job of introducing me. Um, uh, as you mentioned, born and raised in, in Sydney, Australia, my parents had left what we refer to as East Turkestan um, right after Mao Zedong died. And so the first opportunity that they got, um, got their passports and got the hell out of there. Unfortunately, the human rights atrocities um, have not gotten better. In fact, they've gotten worse. And now, since the active genocide in 2017, I've been uh, initially part-time advocating for the Uyghur people, and now for the past two years, full-time working at the Campaign for Uyghurs, advocating for the basic human rights of Uyghurs suffering crimes and against humanity and genocide by the Chinese government. And you mention an important note that things escalated around mm -hmm. 2017. So from my understanding, this oppression has been going on for more than the last two decades. But can you share how it, it evolved um, throughout the 2000s and what exactly is going on in China? Yeah, so we can go a little further back to give a bit more context to your audience now the 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 Uyghurs and the Chinese have been at it for a couple of hundred years uh, if not longer since so the word the for example if we were even were to go back to labels and names the, the what our land or our homeland is called at the moment the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region so the word Xinjiang actually means new frontier new land um, and this name was given to us in, in 1884, when the Qing dynasty under the Manchu Empire took over, and that name sort of stuck with us over the last almost 150 years. And we've we've been under various Chinese uh, empires, Qing Empire, the Chinese nationalists, uh, and now with the Chinese Communist Party. We did see a brief time of uh, independence in 1933 and 1944, we did have our own independent state. And so from 1949, the Chinese Communist Party uh, comes into play and takes over the, the Uyghur region, or East Turkestan as we label it. And you know, under Mao's rule, you had the Cultural Revolution, as they call it, or the Great Leap Forward, but it was actually the Great Leap Backward. And we, we don't know the actual numbers, but the numbers that died during Mao's time, you know, sort of dwarfs Hitler's Nazi Germany. 
Um, I don't like to make that comparison, but there are uh, there are comparisons talking about numbers reaching into the 50 to 60 millions uh, of not just Uyghurs dying, but the Chinese themselves and other ethnic groups. And then after Mao died, there was a sort of lessening of policies, meaning there was a little bit of freedom where Uyghurs and other groups could sort of come up with ideas, a bit of religious freedom. But then there was this underlying still oppression going on. So, for example, in the early 90s, well, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, you saw the implementation of China's one-child policy and two-child policy for so-called ethnic minorities. This policy really ramped up in the early 90s, which, uh, where Uyghurs actually stood up to the government saying, you cannot abort our children. You cannot sterilize our women. Because uh, according to China's rule, uh, you are only allowed to have one or two children uh, with regards to the so-called ethnic minorities. And so we guesstimate that millions of of Uyghur children had been uh, genocided in in that manner. Especially when we get to the beginning of the 2000s, we have the anniversary of the September 11 attacks coming up. China very much used that as an excuse to further clamp down or crack down on Uyghurs, saying that, look, we've got Muslims in our borders, we've got extremists in our borders, and we're going to implement tough uh, regulations uh, uh, against Muslims. And so they use an excuse to clamp down on very normal practices of Uyghurs, so normal religious practices. So you're praying, wearing of certain religious clothing, whether it be headscarves or having beards, taking part in religious activities such as fasting during the month of Ramadan, going to the Hajj pilgrimage, saying simple terminology like assalamu alaikum, like very simple things that Muslims in the West, in the free world can do, was, you know, stamped out in, 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 uh, in, in China, in East Turkestan. And so, but that really, that really got cracked down post 2016, 2017, uh, where those religious practices were sort of half banned, and then they were really, really banned after 20, 2017. So that's a very, very quick summary of uh, what's been happening since 27, since 2000, so to speak. So you gave a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So- Before I move on to my next question, I also want to include that in addition to the ethnic oppression, Western China is heavy in oil, heavy in water. It has three-fourths of China's water, so it's known as the water basin. So this kind of adds fuel to the fire and Mm -hmm. reason for China to be in the position where it's oppressing the Uyghurs. You mentioned sterilization, and I think Mm -hmm. that's very important because under my impression, that is still happening today where the Uyghur women are forced to take birth control and in extreme cases are given forced sterilization. Mm -hmm. Can you touch on that and the different ways that China oppresses the Uyghurs based on their gender? Because, of course, men are also oppressed differently. Yeah, so the policing of Uyghur women's bodies is is very scary, um, a troubling aspect. And, and that's been highlighted in, in a lot of reports and testimonials 
um, you know, the Chinese government does have severe measures to control and restrict the Uyghur women's re reproductive rights and personal choices. You know, as you mentioned, forced sterilization, coerced birth control methods, and widespread campaigns to limit Uyghur population growth. So Uyghur women are subjected to intrusive medical examinations, pressure to use IUDs, and, and receive sterilization surgeries. In our line of work, we interview Uyghur women who have gone through this. I, I had the experience of interviewing a Uyghur medical doctor who, took, who was forced to take part in these. But when she was in the hospital, you know, when, you're, when you grow up in that system, you don't realize that you're, you're committing uh, a crime, uh, you know, being part of the genocide. And she had told me, this woman, for example, that I'm talking about now, she now resides in Turkey. But she, she later on sort of continued her work in Turkey. And when she was, some Uyghur women came to her and hadn't even realized that their reproductive organs, sorry, not, their, not, not the actual organ, but the, the organs, for example, uh, fallopian tubes, uteruses, they, these women had hysterectomies. They could no longer have children, and they didn't even realize that such an operation had happened to them. So she was telling me that Uyghur women would be brought in droves to a hospital. They would complete these operations, taking out reproductive organs, you know, the ability to have children. And these Uyghur women, they didn't even realize because they were put under. They were taught that they had to go through a normal sort of gynecological checkup. And they woke up not realizing that they no longer could have children. Uh, and obviously, there are within the camps themselves, Uyghur women are given drugs and they no longer have periods. They are put into zombie-like states and they don't know what's uh, really going on. And in these camps, we have heard that they torture these women through rape, uh, sexual harassment. There's the testimony of a prominent Uyghur a camp, former camp detainee, Tursunay Ziawuddun, saying that she was abused in her genitalia with electric batons. And so I don't know how much uh, I want to go on, you know, talk, telling your audiences, but it's, it's very, very horrific. And the horror extends in the sense that you mentioned that the doctor herself was a yeah. weaker. And yes. I think that's important to highlight because of the indoctrination that's going on. So can you elaborate on how China teaches students to turn against their parents, employees to turn against one another, and this environment of untrust that you don't know whom to trust if you can trust anyone? So on paper, China allows for various religions such as Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and various forms of Buddhism to be practiced. But in reality, you are not allowed to do that because these religions are seen as the other. These religions compete against atheistic, communistic beliefs. And so from a very young age, you are taught the religion of communism. The Chinese Communist Party is your church and the leader whoever the president or whoever the general secretary is of the Communist Party is literally your God. So in these camps especially, 
you are forced to recompense or you know give out the sins that you committed and write it out on a piece of paper and send this to the Chinese Communist Party. And the more that you do so, you are less punished. You are taught from a very young age. Again, everything that you do is being watched, um, regardless of whether it actually is that 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 notion. We have a saying in the Uyghur language saying that these four walls have ears. Um, so from a very young age, we are told to report on each other because if you do not report, uh, then you yourself will end up in trouble. Or if you do not report, then again, someone else will report on you that you did not report when someone was, was talking about certain ideologies that go against the Chinese Communist Party. So... In these camps, they really wanted to stamp that out because through other means, they weren't quite successful in the schools. When you mention children, the children are not necessarily taught to go against or report on their parents. What happens is the parents would, back in the day, conduct religious activities or talk about the Uyghur culture or Uyghur identity. So this was being taught in the homes. Now, when you're a child, when you're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and the teacher asks you, hmm, what do you guys talk about at home during dinner? The child doesn't know that he's supposed to keep certain information censored to protect his family. He'll go, well, my father taught me how to pray. My mother taught me how to act in a certain way in certain situations. And from that that, that testimony from children, then the teacher goes ahead and reports it to her superiors, and then, and then it gets those children in trouble. So now, because a lot of these testimonies from children, now you see these children being taken away from their parents and being put into state-run orphanages to further brainwash them into perfect Chinese communist atheist citizens. It doesn't stop there. Then you've got, and I will elaborate on what we were talking about a moment ago with the Uyghur women, then the Uyghur women are also forced to marry Han Chinese men. It's to dilute the uh, population. You would have seen such practice. I mean, I'm an Australian. We learned about this briefly with the, uh, in Australia, we had something called the White Australia Policy. And this continued from the early 1900s, and it only ended about, towards the end of the 1960s where we have something called the stolen generation where aboriginal children were taken off and brought up in white homes and they were brought up to accept white culture and very much china that's what china is doing today so that's in a nutshell that's what's been going on and there's so many layers to it because you mention your saying that these walls have ears Yep. And I think many cultures have a similar saying. Mm-hmm. What I think takes China's aggression to another level is that they also have eyes now. You know, China is so technologically advanced. We don't even know to the extent. But yep. we do know that the government is close to the top surveillance companies. Mm-hmm. And so some of the things that I was shocked to read was that these Uyghur families genuinely have a camera in their living rooms. So they are being watched as they watch TV. Or they have their cards that they constantly have to scan to get in and out of their neighborhoods and constant police checkpoints. 
So can you touch a little about how the police checkpoints work, how their neighborhoods are so gated, and also this trustworthy ranking that they are assigned or not assigned based on how they cooperate with China's regulations? Yeah. Uh, would you would you be shocked if I tell you that having a security camera in your home is actually much better than having actual Chinese officials live with you? Because if you can look this up, 1.1 million Chinese officials at any given time, if not more, live with Uyghur homes and surveillance them in a physical manner reporting on what they talk about, if they use the Chinese language sufficiently enough, how they eat, what they eat, what they talk to their children about. So initially, when these camps were full throttle, the men were taken in and women were left alone at home with their kids. And essentially, we had a lot of reports of these Chinese officials raping the women, and they were reporting back on how they would take over their household. And you can see, you can find these videos on social media as well. Um, sort of the, the Chinese officials sleeping with the women just a few minutes before they actually turn off the lights and sleep, that they're in the same bed. And so, again, I, I actually wouldn't mind having a security camera rather than having Chinese officials living with me and eating with me and, and you know, scrutinizing everything that I do and reporting back to their superiors. With regards to the police checkpoints, the police checkpoints uh, are also quite scary. They're often referred to as convenience police stations. They've been set up in cities and towns throughout East Turkestan. And what they say is they use these measures to combat terrorism, separatism and extremism, the three evils, they call them. These police checkpoints are equipped with high-tech surveillance systems, including facial recognition cameras, they monitor movements and activities of the Uyghurs. Um, they are subjected to, Uyghurs especially, are subjected to intense scrutiny. So they mainly target the Uyghurs. So whenever the Han people, the Chinese people walk through, they don't, they're not checked. So whilst they're being checked, their, their ID documents, their phones, their personal belongings, and they even at times, if not most of the time, go through a strip search. And from my understanding, they have these checkpoints, but mm. then in addition to these checkpoints, the Uyghur community also has to scan their ID when they go to the grocery store, when they yep. go to the gas station, before they enter their neighborhood, they can't leave. Yep. Is there any getting around it or it's truly... No, you, yeah. So, so for example, there's something called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, mm -hmm. uh, IJOP. And this is used by the government to target uh, Uyghurs. So the, the system that they have in their phones, right, allows real-time tracking and surveillance of their everyday activities, their movement, communications, social interactions. I mean, a lot of data is collected in the biometric info. So through this system, they can identify individuals who deviate from their norms. So even like such and such is leaving his house from his front door rather than his back door. Or this month, this person or this household is using more electricity than last month. Have they got some power tools that they're using or, or perhaps that they're using less electricity? 
they're using more water this month than last month or how much gas they're using a lot more gas in their car than last month so every single part of your behavior how you behave how you interact hold on this person because now they've got facial recognition and ai this person is acting more sad than last month what's happening always a little more angry like all of this like it's literally something out of a movie but all of this is supposedly able to be tracked and recorded in these apps and it's yeah it's scary to think about because china also uses neurotechnology on their students regardless of the background so even the han uh chinese yeah and so they're learning how their brain waves function how they react what distracts them how quickly they get distracted and mm -hmm. so this is to keep quote unquote their people in line yeah of course how much more abusive does it get when they're using such technology to oppress a people and another point i want to make because we're thinking externally okay yeah. they're watching us with cameras but my understanding is that WeChat is also a very crucial app that it needs to be used for day-to-day -day life in China yeah. and that this is also can be monitored. Is Do you know anything about that as well? Yeah, so WeChat is the equivalent of Apple Pay, Google Maps, WhatsApp, Instagram, sort of all-in-one, uh, sort of like an all-in-one app. Um, it's almost like, you know, your Google apps, but in one app. So WeChat is definitely closely monitored by the government and it has, you know, significant implications for, you know, users' privacy and freedom of expression. Um, you know, initially it was, you know, just a normal social media app, sort of like WhatsApp. You know, you share photos and videos, but now it's very much encompasses all, all the other um, uh, tools that I've just mentioned above. Now it's used as a surveillance tool, uh, both you know domestically and in internationally. So, and you can't really talk about anything. So, if you were to say type in sort of these uh, censored terminology, like for example, Tiananmen Square, or you typed in uh, July fifth, Autumn you like you typed in even certain words. You typed in the word COVID and things like this, it would automatically be censored and you'd get a knock on your door because you and I can right now open up a Facebook account, Instagram account, YouTube account, and we could totally have just like a makeup a name. But in China, to open up any sort of social media account like WeChat, it has to be linked to your government ID. So no one can talk freely. And if they do, and if they do um, criticize the government in any way, they're gonna know who made a post, and 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 not and these aren't just public posts. Even the private conversations that you have, or the video conversations that you have, just one on one, uh, it's supposed to be encrypted, but they can track that as well. Nothing is private. And not only is nothing private, but then even if you are a stand-up character, if they mm -hmm. have any suspicions. There is predictive policing. Yeah. So 
can you talk about, um, I'm not sure if I'm saying their name right, Chen Kwango's role in introducing predictive po policing and how this further incriminates Uyghurs that may have done absolutely nothing wrong? Yeah. So let's talk about what predictive policing is. So if people have watched sort of Minority Report, they're trying to guess, you know, a crime this person may commit in the future. And people are being locked up and being given long-term sentences for this. So, for example, my own family members, right, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, who are close to their 60s, and my two brothers-in-law are pretty much locked up for the past six or seven years specifically for this reason. Because apparently they had thoughts to commit terrorist acts and millions of Uyghurs are put into this for this very reason. So what they apparently do is they collect personal information, again, like apps, like the apps, like through iJob, you know, check your social media, travel history, financial and other things, they say. And again, through the surveillance, through the AI, checking your facial recognition, they think they can guess, well, not just guess, but they think they're, you know, pretty much 90 to 100% sure that such and such person is going to commit terrorist activities because of certain information. So Chen Changuo is a Chinese politician who, who was the head or the chief of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in like sort of mid-August 2016. He was the one that introduced the camps in the region, and he's known for implementing this predictive policing. He, before coming to the Uyghur region, he was the head back in Tibet, and there was a much smaller version of what he was doing in Tibet that we now see in the Uyghur region. So uh, a lot of the predictive policing, the re-education camps, sort of also there was a, a much like a guinea pig version of it in Tibet. And then there was a full-fledged version in the Uyghur region in, from 2016 till today. And what's so scary to think about everything that you just shared, yeah. which is horrifying, and I'm sorry to hear that, yeah. is that we, I as an American, and you're living in D.C. now, is that correct? That's right, yeah. So it's very easy to create this us versus them mentality where, oh, it's not happening to us, it's not our concern. But then we even have predictive policing that's now starting to seep into America. And it was, I think, in 2021 where the Chicago Police Department used a similar approach where they approached a man named Robert McDaniel and they said, our algorithm told us that you are likely to be in a shooting. They mm. didn't know if he would be the shooter or if he wow. would be the one being shot, but they approached him and they are constantly watching him just saying, you know, we want you to know we're watching. Wow. Because the different gangs in Chicago saw him talking to the police. Mm -hmm. They thought he was an informant and he got shot. Oh, wow. And not only did this happen once, but the police refused to leave him alone. And so he got shot a second time. Wow. And so it's this idea where it's happening everywhere. We mm -hmm. see it in Myanmar with the oppression mm -hmm. of the Rohingya Muslim community. Mm -hmm. And we see it being perpetuated differently, but it's always towards minority groups. Mm -hmm. And so... My next question is, is there anything else that we might not be aware of that they're using this data besides predictive policing or besides 
stealing these people from their homes and shipping them to concentration camps, how else should we be aware of how this data is being used and manipulated? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I'm sure you've heard about China stealing technology and using it as their own. So mm -hmm. a lot of the, um, the, the Chinese apps or the companies that we talk about, initially, a lot of these apps were actually invented. They were birthed in, in the U.S., but because of U.S. Mm -hmm. law, um, you couldn't really implement any of this technology. And so China took it, rehashed it, and, you know, China doesn't have the privacy laws that the U.S. has. And I guess you could sort of argue, well, the U.S. are doing it anyway, and you could sort of get into Edward Snowden and everything, but we won't get into that. <laughs> but we can now see this technology, China selling it to various South American countries, some countries in the continent of Africa as well. So these some tyrannical countries in uh, these continents, I'm obviously not labeling the whole continent, you know, I'm mm -hmm. not putting label, but some tyrannical regimes around the world are very much um, adopting the, the same measures that China has. So you mentioned the, the Rohingya. It's Chinese technology, Chinese construction, and Chinese weapons that have allowed for this group to be oppressed. Yeah, so this is definitely spreading around the world. I would say overall, uh, as a human race, we are losing more privacy. We are losing more of our rights every day because of this technology. And I worry that, like China has used terrorism and extremism and separatism as a reason for this technology, for other regimes or even some what we deem to think freedom-loving or democratic countries to enact some of this or to implement some of this for a greater good, so to speak. And you mentioned Africa and, of course, it's a large continent, but the relationship yes. that China has there yeah. And this was evident in 2016 when China said, oh, we'll give Egypt over $11 billion mm -hmm. for infrastructure projects, but you have to return all of the Uyghur people yeah. that have escaped China to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And we saw tens of thousands of Uyghurs being sent back to China. And another concern is I know China was working with Zimbabwe Yep. For again, a trade-off, we'll share the technology we build with Zimbabwe. If Zimbabwe shares their facial data with China, since China does not have training data on Black people. So it's very terrifying, and I think it's very underrated how far-reaching China is and how quiet they are about going about all of this. Yeah. I'm not sure with the exact number of the Uyghurs who were actually sent back to to China. Uh, I, I don't think it was in the tens of thousands, but I had sort of had to look that up. It, it, the, the number is high. Um, yeah, it is quite scary. So I'll put it in, in a few words to sort of cover all that uh, is China's debt trap diplomacy. So as you mentioned, this is a strategic policy employed by the Chinese government to extend its economic and political influence over these countries through debt. So the, the approach is, as you mentioned, providing loans to develop sort of second or third world countries, as you mentioned, infrastructure projects. And the aim of this is to gain leverage and secure access to resources and potentially exert control over these borrowing nations. 
So we mentioned you know, infrastructure, infrastructure investments. So they're, they're building railways, they're building ports, they're building highways, they're building plants. And so what they'll, you know, these, these loans, these countries are not going to be able to pay them back. So they go, you know what, we'll control this port for 99 years. Give us a lease, you know, and we'll control it. So it's, it's, it's a form of, it's another form of colonialism. They're not going in with um, guns and ships and, you know, bombs, but they're, you know, through money, they are taking over uh, these countries. They're giving these, the, the, these debts that these countries are not going to be able to pay back. And now we're seeing payback time, asset seizure and control. In some cases with countries, they're unable to pay the debt back. And so China takes over the ports uh, that, they, that they gave. And you mentioned Zimbabwe. And especially another big thing is they'll give this money or they'll, or they'll build these things for them or they'll give them technology. So when it comes to major decisions at, say, the United Nations, you know, certain resolutions are going to be put against China because of the crimes that they've committed against the Uyghurs or whatever other group, these countries who are indebted to China are going to vote for China. So mm-hmm. that's another big way of, you know, China controlling the narrative in the world, especially at these world forums like the United Nations, at the human rights councils. So twofold, you are correct. According to Al Jazeera, it was, it's estimated that it was seven to 8,000 that were yeah. sent back from Egypt. Um, oh, my apologies. That's okay. Uh, yeah. Um, my next point. So you mentioned how China manipulates the narrative. Yeah. And I think it's important to differentiate between technology and social mm-hmm. media. Yeah. So can you touch on how social media is used to structure the narrative and why you think there's not more awareness? Well, the main thing is we simply cannot on, go on the ground. It's not like uh, other places where, like, like the Rohingya or say in Palestine or wherever there's an oppression, you know, there are there is uh, news media on the ground uh, there. The people there have access to mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, they're live posting what's going on. That that's one of the main reasons. And now, again, in 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 a war of narratives, the main government, the main country that is sort of uh, standing up for the Uyghurs is the United States. And a lot of people are skeptical because of the U.S. war on terror. You know, you sort of bombed uh, some countries back to the Stone Age, and now you want to stand up for Muslims here? What's your agenda? Mm -hmm. Now, we understand that all countries have national interests. It just so happens that the genocide, which is real, has in line with U.S. national interests. And so, therefore, there is this misinformation, and because no one can actually go to the ground and do independent investigation. There is always a cloud of doubt to the veracity of actually what's going on in the ground. And it makes me think of the Sri Lankan genocide on the Tamil community, which mm-hmm. is still being denied despite, I will say, I think it's tens of thousands, maybe over a mm-hmm. hundred thousand, I think, but I yeah. will have to fact check. But so many missing people again, 
that they have no response for where they went. And we have so many families saying, well, we just never spoke to these people again, which is seems to be heartbreakingly the case with the Uyghur people. Mm -hmm. And so my next question is, if there is so much misinformation, which is the case today, and it is so difficult to get information out, then how can people such as myself that want to educate ourselves, how can we find resources that we can trust to do so? Yeah, so there are prominent human rights organizations. I would go directly, first of all, to the Uyghur rights groups that are covering this on a daily basis. I mean, we at Campaign for Uyghurs, we cover this on a daily basis on our website, on our social media. Other prominent human rights organizations, Amnesty International, you know, globally recognized human rights organization, they investigate They've investigated heavily on the the Uyghur genocide, Human Rights Watch, which we've all heard about, the United Nations Human Rights Council. They have some reports. And last year, we're actually coming on the anniversary in in a couple of days. Uh, They released a report in 2022, August 31, saying that China's crimes may amount to crimes against humanity. There's a thorough report there. Follow the US State Department uh, website. And then you've also got, you know, the impeccable work of uh, reports coming from the BBC, Reuters, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, you know, with lots of references. I mean, and you could sort of argue that, oh, it's just Western propaganda. But, you know, Al Jazeera, Eastern, there's a lot of Eastern media outlets as well that have been covering this. I, we know it's, it's covered in a lot of Indian media, uh, the Hong Kong Free Press. So lots of sources still for you to go to regardless of the the sort of the misinformation out there. You mentioned Al Jazeera. I love yeah. Al Jazeera, so yeah. I trust their <laughs> news. So we covered a lot. And so for my final question, it's more open-ended. It's more, what should we be aware of that we're, a lot of the Western world is unaware of? And also, how can we do our part, not just by educating ourselves, but by raising awareness, by trying to provoke policy through the UN? Who knows? What would you suggest we can do or we should be made aware of? One, don't treat China like a normal country. It's definitely not. And again, I'm not over-exaggerating. No, We've seen the certain document documentaries when we when we hear about North Korea. It literally is North Korea, just with a lot more money. And it's a little bit, a bit, you know, you can sort of travel to China, so to speak. So for example, big argument, LGBTQIA, right? It's illegal for you to be LGBTQIA in China. You know, you, you'll be thrown in prison. It'll be beaten out of you. You know, when we have the pro-choice or pro-life discussions that we have in the West, we just saw the the women's rights that I'm just talking about, forced sterilization, forced marriages, forced rapes, forced abortions. When we talk about the internet, Chinese people don't have an internet. They have an intranet. For you to use a VPN to jump over the Chinese firewall is seen. It's a second degree terrorism charge. You can look this up. And we do go through, you know, some human rights violations in the West, whether you're in the United States or Europe or Australia. We do have it. But there is an avenue for you to protest without being thrown into into prison. 
there is an avenue to sort of voice your concerns about, so hypothetically, I'm an Australian citizen. My mum lives in Australia, right? And I, I've come to the United States and then I start complaining to the United States government. Hey, you know what? In Australia, we're going through this, 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 this. I'm not going to be worried about my mum who lives in Sydney, Australia, getting a knock on the door from Australian police. It's a totally different kettle of fish. You cannot compare it. As for what you can do, especially with the, with the tools that we have with um, technology, you know, citizen uh, journalism, um, you know, sharing this stuff on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, uh, talking it, talking about it with your 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 family, your friends. Uh, if you're a student in university, write a paper on it. Uh, the different aspects of this genocide, online activism, hashtags. You know, if if you've got connections with government officials or MPs or senators, you know, petitions and letters. I mean, there's so much that we can do to do our bit in highlighting it. And the most simple, simple thing, forced labor, right? So we haven't talked about this, but China is actually profiting off the Uyghurs because you're not going to make any money just by housing or putting people into concentration camps. You're going to put them to use, right? You're going to make them make our Nike shoes, the clothes, our technology. So do your best to avoid buying made in China uh, goods. We're very lucky in the United States. You know, there's something called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that's been enacted. And now we see a lot more less made in China goods. But Chinese goods are still getting through the loophole, you know, with, with social media sites like Sheen. Uh, there's something called the de minimis, de minimis loophole where any goods under $800 are not checked at the border. And then these goods that are that could be tainted with legal forced labor get still get through. So do at the at your very best avoid buying made in China goods because every penny that you spend, you could be knowingly or unknowingly being complicit in this genocide. Thank you for mentioning the forced labor because I intended to mention that, but there was so much to discuss today. I want to thank you for your insight, for everything you shared. And to our listeners, thank you for listening and stay tuned for another episode of Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Have a good day, everyone.